Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to This Week in Mormons. I'm Jeff Openshaw, your longtime host, confidant, admirer, and map nerd. Those are my titles, and I'm happy to be here with you this week. I appreciate you taking the time to tune in. Join us again for another week of Latter-day Saint-focused news and ephemera. Correct? So it's going to be a great time. Please go to thisweekinmormons.com if you don't frequent our website and follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash TheRealTwim. Find us at TheRealTwim on Twitter because re- like Twitter accounts, when you're not verified, you make your actual handle the real something so people know that that's what you're There's don't, don't settle for the imposter Twim account, folks, is what I'm telling you. Um, and also on Instagram. And of course, big shout out to our patrons on Patreon. You can support the show on Patreon as well by finding This Week in Mormons on there and you can two bucks a month that's easy we don't even drink coffee you're not spending coffee money so two bucks a month helps us keep the lights on it'd be great and i'm thrilled this week to be joined by our old sunday school bonanza alumnus and dear personal friend of mine let's be honest it's it's i have uh i mean i probably i feel like recuse myself with you patricia because frankly i've known you in a personal capacity for many years but patricia doxy's here hi hi trish hello everyone for context, you know, we've known each other for a long time, but I think that's the first time you've ever called me Trish. I drop it sometimes only because my wife seems to have like authorized that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Our, our friendships. You and can for have context, the, the halo oh, permission there. When my wife, before we got married and we didn't have an apartment yet, she, before we got married, she slept on Patricia's floor in her bedroom for like a month until we got an apartment. It's that level of love that we have. And incidentally, I was cleaning out my car this week and I found a random key. You're going to love this. And Danielle was looking at it today. She's like, what's this key for? I'm like, I don't know. I found it in like the ashtray. I haven't looked in there in, in, in 10 years probably. And she said, you know what? I'm pretty sure that's the old key to Trisha's house. That's amazing. In Pentagon City. And I said, do you think it still works? Should we go freak them out? That whoever whoever lives there now? <laughs> Just see if it unlocks the door. So uh, any of the sisters who live in Pentagon City, um, I have a key. If well, they did. sold the house. They sold <gasps> the house to a couple that converted it to a single dwelling unit. So they likely changed the locks when they bought it. Did it need converting to a single dwelling unit? I mean, it was a house where you all had bedrooms in the house. It wasn't like you had separate. Right. I guess converting it instead of farming it out to six different women. They, just they used it for its actual purpose. Yes. Have a family. So, well, yes. Well, that breaks my heart. Anyway, how are you doing? How's Utah? Um, Utah is hot. It's, uh, well, I mean, I guess. I do have to have the caveat. I know that it's hot, but coming from Arizona, it doesn't feel that hot. Um, but I, I do know that's not to minimize um, people's pain in the weather. Um, it feels normal to me, but I know that it is hot. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be experiencing that Arizona heat during That's this right. heat wave as well this weekend. I want to give a big, big shout out to my sister, Melanie, who's getting married this weekend, everybody. We're going to have a twin Congrats. wedding. It's going to be very exciting. You so should I get, live tweet it. I get, uh, maybe I will, from the Gilbert Temple. It's from going to be the Gilbert Temple. I get to go to Arizona where it's going to be 113 degrees on Saturday. What? fun why do people live in arizona patricia i don't understand i know it couldn't happen until the post-war era with the advent of air conditioning but even so who who went to phoenix nowadays it's all these people fleeing from california and elsewhere but before that who wanted to be in phoenix why are people there i don't understand it's not habitable habitable it's, habitable, it's, habitable. it's pretty hot it's pretty darn hot um i don't really know jeff i don't i don't know our Arizona listeners hate me, but I just don't understand. The, I don't understand how the civilization exists there. Sure, maybe Prescott, Flagstaff, Sholo. Of course, people can be there. 
but I mean, Phoenix, I just folks. I mean, they, they have a, they have a few good things and, uh, the, the winter is lovely hikes all the time. Oh, it's great. Or you could live somewhere where you could hike all the rest of the time. That's true. That's true. Maybe you should let the Arizona people know. But at the same time, we're dealing with cicada infestations, so that's the fun times we get to have in Virginia. Which my my son, my son was just picking him up tonight, like letting him crawl around on his hand, and it was awesome. You guys need to get some seagulls, man. (laughs) Take care of that problem. (laughs) We don't have any seagulls. I do see a number of starlings and the uh, a slew of turkey vultures. Okay, so. Once they die, the turkey vultures will show up, but they're too lazy to hunt for real. So anyway, because, uh, you know, they carry in. So everybody, let us talk about the fine, fine world of Latter-day Saint news. We're excited to do news again this week. If you didn't hear last week's great episode with Project Elect, the organization devoted to recruiting Latter-day Saint women to run for public office. After you listen to this episode, go back and get that one in your queue. It was awesome. Really worthwhile. Uh, talking to the wonderful women from that. And I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I think you would enjoy it, Patricia. Maybe it'll inspire you to get involved in your community. Maybe it will. There's um, um, a woman that announced, I don't know if you guys talked about this yet. I'll have to put it next to my queue, but um, uh, Edwards announced running for, um, running for public office in Utah. And she seems like a really great candidate. Running for, for what? I mean, the office. Let, is, me, let, let me look up more of the specifics, but okay. um, listening to her talk, I feel like she's a pretty, pretty smart, um, well-spoken, forward-thinking woman. And Oh, she's challenging Mike Lee. Okay. That's, this, that's what I was thinking, but this, I wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's former state rep Becky Edwards is challenging Mike Lee in the in the primary this is a this is a run at mike lee i'd say you could run at the right to mike lee but there's no possible way to do that so it's a it's a run around at the center or somewhere else that's exciting this is what we're talking about you know it's great well i think we have patricia's endorsement to everyone for the i think this podcast now that donald trump is out of office we have to find someone that i can complain about on the show. So I guess we'll devote our resources to getting rid of Mike Lee. Is that, is that our, is that the goal? I don't you know, know what I, I can't define for you what your goals are, but I think Becky Edwards would be a great replacement. No, everyone knows the better replacement would be Devin Thorpe, co-host of Twim. He ran for Congress and okay. Utah third against John Curtis and he lost shockingly in Utah's third district. Who knows how that happens? I mean, folks. Jerry right, so, so a lot of interesting news coming out this week. Uh, much of it, there's a lot of renovation-esque related news as well this week, just a number of different areas. And some of this is holdovers from you know the past two weeks. We didn't do news last week. But I'll start off with one of these. So uh, as we know, Temple Square, there's a lot of Temple Square news. Uh, Temple Square, of course, much of it's under construction. In downtown Salt Lake, mostly related to the big renovation project for the Salt Lake Temple, which is having them tear up all the ancillary buildings, redo the whole thing. And when they started that project, they tore down the South Visitor Center. That was the smaller visitor center that didn't have a ton in it. It was it was dinky, but it was the one that had a great view out the window of the temple. And it had that really cool cutaway model of the temple, if you ever saw that, which was which still exists. You can see that in the visitor center, in the uh, conference center. Actually, that's where they have it right now. So we all knew this was part of the plan. But just as these plans change, like when they announced they were going to get rid of all the murals and stuff in the Salt Lake Temple, that wasn't part of the plan either. They announced last week 
that they're going to tear down the North Visitor Center. Now, that's the famous big visitor center with the giant 11-foot-tall Christus statue where a lot more events and things are held uh, on Temple Square. They're not going to replace it with a new visitor center. They're just going to put in uh, some gardens. And And contemplative spaces. I don't know what that means. I I don't know what that means. Does that mean a Zen garden? Because if so, that's still a garden. I don't know what it's going to mean. But uh, that's what they're going to put in instead. I'm curious for the rationale behind this. I mean, the building was fine. I don't know if it was because, like, you know how during uh, during Christmas time it becomes kind of a, a busy, irreverent rallying spot, I guess, when you go see the lights at Temple Square. But beyond that, I mean, where are the sister missionaries going to hang out? That's, that's sort of. That's, that's what I wondered. Right now they're hanging, they mostly spend all their time at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building Mm. um, with Temple Square being mostly shut down. But yeah, I wondered for them as well, where where are they going to go to escape the cold when it gets really cold out there? I don't know. So this is just a, it's an interesting development to me. I guess it's, uh, the whole point they say is because they want to make the sight lines better to make the temple more visible. Right. Uh, As we noted in our article here. At Twim, I guess that depends on where you are, because if you're like standing in front of the visitor center in Temple Square, the temple's plainly visible. It's right there. But if you're outside of Temple Square, well, it's all walled off. And I know they've talked about putting in fences instead of walls, so the temple's more prominent. And if you were to get rid of that big building right there on the corner of North Temple and West Temple, uh, then from the beautiful KSL parking lot, I guess you'll have a better view of the Salt Lake Temple. But there it goes. The Christa statue is still going to be used elsewhere on Temple Square. They're not getting rid of that entirely. It's in storage and they plan to put it somewhere. I don't know what that's going to mean. And if it's going to be exposed to the elements, I have no idea. But And then um, you mentioned, Jeff, the Temple Square is reopening in phases beginning in the summer. So what do they do for that one? Like so much of it's under construction. I don't know. I, I saw that news and, you know, I used to live on Main Street, like 50, 50 feet um, from the uh, from the grounds, and I was just uh, really surprised to hear that they begin reopening so soon because it's still pretty torn up. Yeah, it, it says by Temple Square. I believe they're they're using this to being beyond the actual square of Temple Square. They basically mean the church campus all around this area is going to reopen, and so effective today as we're recording, actually the conference center is going to be reopened for tours, and you can see like the. Um, the um the replica the Christus statue and that cutaway model of the Salt Temple. It. You can basically just go check out the conference center like okay. you used to. So that's more COVID related than construction. I, I think a lot of it. But then there are parts of it closed, but they're still gonna do some virtual tours and then you can go in the assembly hall and the tabernacle. But obviously nothing else is available beyond that other than like the Beehive House, Church History Museum, Church History Library, all gotcha. these other support buildings you'll be able to visit. But clearly with two visitor centers and a temple under construction, you're just I imagine where they're just going to open like the little West gate. So you can see the tabernacle in the assembly hall. And that's kind of it. I don't know. Well, they, they, that gate has been closed. We, you know, we used to go on lots of walks um, yeah. and yeah, the area in front of the church office building is all torn up. All the fountains are up. Yeah. And there's so. that whole project too. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with the space. I love the fact that they're adding in more gardens. They're getting pretty, they're getting pretty uh, nature heavy, um, which is also a lot of what they're doing at the, um, Hill Camorra site, which was another piece of news, ripping up the buildings um, that supported the the temple pageant, um, taking out big parking lots and making it a 
a network of trails leading to the monument. Yeah, this is this is a big deal, really. I mean, obviously, the church has been revitalizing a lot of different things, uh, and they did this at the Sacred Grove apparently years ago. I don't know what the condition exactly of it was, but they went they undertook a reforestation effort around the Sacred Grove to make it what it is. And if you go there, it's a very different experience than I think it used to be. You know, you can they'll give you a little tour of the Smith family home, and then the missionaries just set you loose and just say, "Go ahead, wander into the grove." And there's some benches in there, but no one goes in there. No one's really talking and giving you a tour of the grove. It's yours to experience. And so, uh, if you look at a satellite image of the Hill Camora, this was taken clearly during the pageant because you can see the whole stage set up like mm. top of the hill. But you can see how there was the stage. You can see how everything's cut through. You can see all the areas that have been torn up in terms of trees to make room for basically so the pageant can be held every year when they come in and do it. So there's space for seats, for support buildings, for you can tell that's parking across the street in that big field that's just got kind of years and years of of tires driving over it and stirring it up. All of that's going to be reforested, apparently. The whole thing, they're going to tear out every building but the visitor center and the monument on top of the, the hill, the Moroni monument up there. And what's kind of cool is they're going to actually build a network of trails, they say. like, And they'll have signage that talks about different parts of the experience. I don't know how long these trails will be, if it's full-blown hiking or anything like that. Uh, but they will all lead to the monument, which will remain. I don't know if the monument will still have a clean line of sight out elsewhere or if they're going to really forest it up so it'll be all tucked away. But that's uh, cool with it. It's fine. I mean... I like reforestation. Yeah, it'll, I mean, you know, like upstate New York doesn't like really struggle to grow trees. You just kind of let nature do its thing and they show up pretty pretty naturally. It's kind of like where I am here in Virginia where you have to go to an effort so there's not trees as opposed to something else. But I'm all for this. It's interesting to me they want to do it though. I guess, as all, you know, the pageant's over. They announced it wouldn't come back because co- it was supposed to get one more one more year before they shut it down. But then with COVID and everything and they've just said, eh, we're not going to like go for it in 2022 and give it a whirl again. That's it. It's done. And so now they just figure, let's make the uh, Hill Camorra a sacred place that reminds people a little bit more of how it must have been when Joseph first went there. Yeah. That's cool. I can get, it's going to take decades too. This is not like a couple year thing. Right. It's going to be saplings and seeds and all kinds of stuff. And it's going to take a long time. And, but Hey, when you take your kids there, folks, when they're older, you can say you knew them when, Exactly. Look at that. We just cranked out three stories in like 10 minutes. Well, this show is going to be over before we even get to, this is going to be shorter than a Weezer album. This is awesome. <laughs> well, and there's, there's more, there's more infrastructure related news um, with the Tallahassee temple groundbreaking. Um, I gave that one to you because of your, not your, your Florida experiences, even though my, you weren't in the panhandle, but yes, my Florida experience. Um, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it, you know, it, it was announced or it was announced a while ago. They, they had the kickoff. Um, and there was actually a nice puff piece in the Tallahassee Democrat covering it as well. Um, and you know, they, they did a great job at explaining things. And I did have to laugh. They announced who the general contractor was and who the um, the local builders for the actual constructions and architects. Um, but they, the architectural firm noticed that their design followed a kind of temple template from the LDS church. So yep. it doesn't sound like they were given a ton of leeway, um, but it was a nice piece from the Tallahassee Democrat. And um, I thought it was a nice touch that a non-North uh, American... Um, 
uh, or sorry, it was uh, the North American Southeast Area President, sorry, uh, presided at the groundbreaking ceremony on Saturday. So, um, I, I, yeah, I just like that they, they chose a area president um, to preside over that, and it sounds like it was a nice ceremony. Yeah, it's Elder James B. Martino. He's been in the Quorum of the 70s since April 2009. You want to hear more about him? After graduation from BYU, he began working for Russell Newman, Inc., an apparel company, and he was president and CEO until 2000. He was the chairman of the company until his retirement in 2009. He's had many church callings. The man, he's from Denton, Texas. The man knows what's up. It is funny they noted that in the article, that, yeah, the um, like you said, they gave him kind of a temple template and said, don't deviate too much. And that's, I mean, you see in the design for this, you can clearly see how it's related to some other more recent temples, even if it has some of its own right. flavor. But gone are the days when you're going to have random people come in and give you a San Diego temple, for example, and they just say, just do, just, you know, throw out the playbook, do whatever you want, figure it out, make something cool. Yeah. Not exactly going to happen now. More efficient for sure, but maybe a little less unique. Yeah, it's kind of like the correlation of it's like the correlation program for temples, really. Exactly. <laughs> but I get it. It's it's all about efficiency, and it's funny. Speaking of that efficiency, so we've spoken a little bit in the past recent months about the possibility of the church embracing modular architecture, modular construction methods, rather, to build some newer temples, and how there's some evidence that points to this being the case. All of which. Ha- circles around the famed Helena, Montana temple, which as a reminder, if you're listening for the first time, a rendering for that temple was released only about two weeks after it was announced in general conference, which is not the typical speed at which that happens. I mean, temples get announced in Utah and it does not happen in two weeks that a rendering and a location come out. And this is up in Helena, Montana, um, which was shocking. And then of course, Corey Ward, one of our writers who gets goes deep on temple research, uh, had a quote from a member of the presiding bishopric who basically said that like they're going to break ground on this temple in a few months and it'll probably be like up and running in like 13 months, which is way faster than temple construction usually goes, right? It's usually about three years. So that's an interesting bit of news. And they haven't officially said they're going to do modular stuff, but there's a lot of things that point to that. Find Look for look for modular on thisweekinmormons.com and you can read the whole lengthy deep dive about it and the firms that Corey discovered that are partnering with the church and have a history of building temples and do all this stuff. I mentioned this because if that's a modular temple of only 10,000 square feet and it's going to go up quickly, the church announced this week the location of two of the other temples of the 20 that were announced this past general conference. They announced their locations. They did not uh, release a rendering, but they did at least leak that there'll be approximately 10,000 square feet um, and single story temples, which means they'll basically be like the Helena temple, which makes me wonder if it's going to be more, more of this and if they'll go up quickly and yada, yada, yada. So we got the Casper, Wyoming temple, Elko, Nevada temple, two temples serving pretty isolated populations. Of course, Wyoming doesn't have like any big cities. Like where are you from? Gillette, Casper, Sheridan. There's nowhere. There's not a lot there. Cheyenne is the biggest city in Wyoming. Um, it's great. They're going to have a temple in Casper. That's wonderful for the saints of Wyoming. And then, of course, uh, Elko, Nevada, the same thing. Elko is extremely isolated because there's nothing in Nevada outside of Clark County and up there uh, by Reno. And so it makes sense they'll have smaller temples. So 10,000 square feet. That's great. Well, I look forward to seeing if they kind of look like Helena and if it'll be the same thing. Uh, The other site revealed, though, of course, 
As you might recall from our temple predictions that we like to make and we are often correct about, we predicted another temple in Cache Valley, Utah, because the Logan Temple is busting at, bursting at the seams, essentially. It has too many stakes assigned to it compared to what's the norm in Utah at this point. And so they announced another temple in the Cache Valley in Smithfield, which is north by probably only 10 or 15 minutes from most of Logan. Uh, but lest you think this might be a more modest building, a support building for Logan, if you will. No, it will be an 81,000 square foot temple because we don't wow. build temples in Utah unless there are 80,000 square feet. That seems to be the norm. Wow. The only one that apparently might be smaller than that is that one in Ephraim that they built to be effectively a support temple for Manti because now that they're not going to destroy a lot of Manti's interior, they decided to just build a new temple in Ephraim. But uh, it's, it's going to be a biggie. Three-story temple, 81,000 square feet. That tracks with all these recent ones we've seen, Syracuse, Layton, uh, the, um, what's it called now? Deseret Peak, the one in Tooele. Mm-hmm. All, all these temples are, Orem, uh, Linden, they're all pretty much of that ilk and of that size. So congratulations to the fine people of Smithfield. And I would not be shocked if that temple will go up relatively quickly. And then when it's done, they announce they're going to close the Logan Temple and give it some much needed TLC. I think that might happen. So Okay. Cool temple news. Yeah, I feel like you always have some great inside scoop into the temples, and your predictions are shockingly accurate. Um, so, yeah, interesting perspective there. I know things. The thing is, it's Ulysses, Ulysses and, and Garrett talk to me offline. <laughs> they tell me what's going on. Gotcha. By the way, did you happen to see, you know how it's going around right now? Everyone's doing that that goofy app to make everyone look like Disney characters. Oh, you know, I've seen that on the gram, but I have not known what it is. So thanks for letting me know what those creatures It's an app that I'm not... It's like when everyone did that Russian one the other year that made you look old, right? So now it's to make you look like Disney characters. People have done it for the brethren based on their official portraits, which makes for a fun exercise. <laughs> gotcha. That's all. We're checking out. Okay. Um, so no Saturday evening conference sessions. That's a big um, deal. Yeah, I... I Jeff, maybe you can explain to me. I do not understand their rationale. They said this change is being made because all sessions of general conference are now available to anyone who desires to watch or listen. Was that the only reason they were having these sessions is because not everyone was available to watch them? I, I don't really get it. I don't get it either, and I've seen the same. I saw the same explanation you did. I mean, I know, I know. Back when, before they started broadcasting the priesthood session, then the women's meeting when they were, to, you know, when they were both mm-hmm. happening or separate things, and then they started broadcast. I don't know if we've just slowly eased into this, but if the rationale has always been some semblance of like exclusivity or something, and if we can't have that, why do it at all? I guess it's. Uh, I don't totally get. I think there's value in it. I think a, a lot of the this story got picked up on by mainstream media, the MLM, evil MLM folks. Um, M- mainstream media, MSM. M- MSM, MLMs. On the other hand, I have some products I would like to share with you. I've been waiting for yeah, you fine. to entrust me with this knowledge. I'm uh, frankly upset that you've withheld it from. They call from- me an. They call me an ambassador. I'm a brand ambassador. Brand ambassador, and, and I'm focused on wellness. Okay. So, uh, I, yeah, I'm with, I don't, I don't fully get it either. I mean, I, I, so, so some of the mainstream media did pick up on this and some of the headlines read basically like the church is ending like male only meetings done in kind of a pejorative sense. 
which I've never looked at it like it's that big of a deal because like we still have elders quorum. We still have all these other things. I don't think having a priesthood session in and of itself has been goofy. And I think we've moved towards a bit more parity with the genders in that sense when we started doing priesthood session once a year, the women's meeting once a year, and they would alternate, you know, based on which conference it was. And that was fine. I don't think it's, I don't, I'm not bothered having the women have a session for them. Although, although I do understand I'm not a woman and I get it that even the women's session has all the female leaders speaking and then a member of the first presidency still gets up to, to, to speak. So it's never fully a meeting completely by women for women. Um, and I think, I mean, I think people still appreciate hearing from a prophet or an apostle or what have you, but it is different for men because we don't have like women crashing the priesthood right. session, right? So, yeah. um, so I don't know, maybe it just kind of removes any of that, 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 that goofiness. I think the big question a lot have, and I'd love to hear how you feel about this, Patricia, is m- many women, especially wonder like, okay, we don't hear from tons of women at general conference to begin with. Is this just going to be a net loss or are they going to absorb that into the regular sessions of conference and just have more female presence during the daytime sessions? Yeah, I mean, the optimist in me hopes that they'll take it as a chance to reevaluate their how they select their speakers and make more parity in terms of gender. You know, the last couple sessions, I feel like they've made great efforts to make it more of a multicultural experience and reflect mm-hmm reflect membership around the world. And I'm hoping that that will, that trend will continue to be more inclusive of um, genders and um, represent women more. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't happen. You know, Jeff, you and I were talking, chatting before we hit the record button and, you know, just talking about, oh, the, the speaking lineup is really a reflection of leadership. I don't think it's necessarily intentional to exclude women, but when you have to pull representatives from the 70, all members of the 12, leadership from all the auxiliaries, you just, and there really aren't that many female auxiliaries. So, you know, this is just, this is about speaking, but it's also about increasing parity and leadership roles in the church. And how do we do that? And, you know, give more opportunities for women to hear from women, but also men hear from women, mm-hmm. you know, and, and consider different perspectives and see them as leadership and, and um, a leadership voice and people that both men and women look up to in the church. And so I want to think about that. Cause like we said, yes, as far as a, as a representation of how many of their gender exists in the upper echelons of church leadership, it's actually kind of a, a parody as you suggested, right? I mean, there's only nine women to choose from in general conference and there's a lot more men. What can we do then if the issue isn't necessarily an appropriate sample of the leadership? It's just the fact that we need more leadership roles for women. That would be at a general conference level. I'm curious like what those would be. What would we do? I mean, we've talked a lot about like, why can't Sunday school have women involved? That's a whole other question. But would we get the Relief Society board involved? Would they be speakers? I I would love to think of like how we would extend this to have a greater presence for women, but we'd have to have callings that make sense for that to be the case. And I I don't know what they would be. Well, I mean, and I think that's because you're thinking of church leadership as the way it is now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people tend to think the way it is now is the way it will always be. But there's been huge growth and changes in terms of um, male and female leadership in the church and even the, the role of the Relief Society in being brought under the auspices of priesthood leadership. 
Um, it, you know, it used to be a totally separate organization with different agenda, different budget. Oh, yeah. um, so I think it will take rethinking of structures and figure out, okay, there are structural barriers that prohibit women from participating in these leadership conversations. And we might need to rethink some of that. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is. And you're right. I guess I'm thinking of traditional structure. like so. And we have seen general conference evolve. I remember we had the youth speak a year ago, which was great out of nowhere. That was a bit of a deviation from the normal script. It'd be that fun was if, great. if they branched it out more and just had even non-general authorities speak. And we didn't have Lloyd Newell saying speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers. For my money, I'm still like, give me women in the Sunday school presidency because I still... Other than the fact the handbook says it, I still don't have like an actual doctrinal reason why at the ward to say nothing of the general level, but at the right. ward level, that's not a thing. I've it's I it think does- that, that would be a short term win, right? Like yeah, yeah. breaking down barriers and pre existing structures. And then I think long term looking at what are the structures that we already have or that we have that we need to rethink and dismantle. You want to decorrelate the church. That's where you want to go. You want to undo everything from the 60s, don't you? I just, I, I, there are a few things that I would undo if given, if given the power, but you know, surprisingly, they haven't asked me my opinion in a long time. What? You don't get one of the surveys online or anything like that? Um, I haven't gotten one. I love taking surveys actually. Um, but I, I haven't gotten one of the surveys. They should bring back the Relief Society magazine. That would be fun. I don't see it happening considering they finally amalgamated the uh, Ensign and the Liahona, which were basically the same publication anyway. But uh, that would be fun. They I did can't. start They did start a podcast. I haven't listened to it for LDS women. Um, I saw a friend who's working on the podcast mention it. Um, but I know they are starting to, you know, they, they did amalgamate some of those podcasts. Uh, magazines, but I think they're, they are starting to explore different podcasting options. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we'll check that out. That's yeah. good stuff. Um, no other big news that just dropped today b- before we uh, were going to record. The church has announced new partnerships with the NAACP, which is great. The NAACP, if you're unfamiliar, is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, a very prominent uh, well-funded, influential lobbying group that works on behalf of um, of the non-white community, shall we, shall we say. So the church has been working towards a stronger relationship with the NAACP for the past couple of years. This has clearly been an issue near and dear to President Nelson's heart. I'm not saying nobody else would have done it, but it's been evidence from the moment he came in that he started working with them. And I, I think even a couple of years ago, people thought it was just lip service. Like we're friends with the NAACP and everyone said, Nito. And they wondered what else we would do with it. Well, today we found out a few things they are going to be doing. They, they had a joint press conference with leaders from the NAACP in Salt Lake City and talked about the challenges communities of color are facing. And uh, for lack of a better expression, in many ways, the church, we're putting our money where our mouth is on this. Like we're getting very involved. So um, at least for the next three years, the church is going to fund a $1 million scholarship per year overseen by the United Negro College Fund, which helps black students in the United States. Uh, President Nelson also 
told us that the church is going to provide a $250,000 scholarship or fund for the Amos C. Brown Student Fellowship to Ghana, which should allow select students from the USA to go to West Africa and learn about their heritage, which is great. And then uh, lastly, we're going to pledge $2 million per year for the next three years to encourage service and help those in need. Essentially, we're trying to, we're bringing relief, as I say, quote, bring relief to suffering souls in underprivileged areas of the United States and teach self-reliance along the way. We're very much going after economically and socially depressed parts of our country, uh, which are more often than not uh, more predominantly communities of color. And uh, we're going to invest some money in that, which is it's awesome. I'm glad they're. I'm, I'm super psyched to see us getting engaged in all of this and being generous with it. And I know we have announced it for three years. I hope, I hope we uh, continue on after that three years from now. It's really cool. I agree, Jeff. I know that there was a big kerfuffle, and I don't know that this completely erases it when people found out how much money the church was keeping. Ah, yes. In cases of emergency. You you mean the rainy day fund we didn't tap into during the worst rainy day of the past 18 months? (laughs) Right. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Um, But I, I, like you, I'm glad to see that they really are putting significant money behind it. And there's a little room to grow um, based off of how much money is in that rainy day fund. But I do like that it is um, money going towards helping helping communities. Um, They did couch it, you know, several terms that I think are common in, in church, um, church approaches to this, like self-reliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but I, I do think it's great to be investing, investing in education and really counters some of the negativity that's happened. Um, I know this isn't a Utah podcast, but some, um, some feelings that have erupted in Utah, the Utah Mormon scene over critical race theory. And I think this is a nice counterpoint to that um, to provide somebody, you know, some, some good news in how we can invest in our communities. um, Even when it's not the community we identify with. Um, So I, I, I did really like that story and I was heartened to see it. I don't want to digress too much just in case any of our listeners don't understand the context of the critical race theory issues in Utah. Are you able to provide a a little primer about it? I mean, sure. I mean, it, it's not terribly uncommon being a strongly Republican state. Critical race theory is this hot button phrase that have made the rounds on Fox News. Um, it, what it what it actually is? It's an evaluation of legal structures through the eyes of. Um, its impact, disproportionate impact on different racial groups. So that's what it is. It's a very esoteric legal theory um, that gets hit on in some specialized legal courses, some graduate courses on um, race relations. For some reason, this phrase has really made the rounds in conservative groups as kind of a a boogeyman um, of a backlash against um, anti-racist rhetoric. Um, And they're being... It's often used to describe that uh, whites are bad and white people are less than. You um, mean critical race theory itself, or you mean this interpretation of that interpretation? um, I I don't really understand that or see it. Some people point towards one of the, you know, they they call him a founder. He's not really a founder. He was just an early intellectual in critical race theory. He was a Marxist, um, but guess what? 
there's a little bit of Marxism in Joseph Smith too. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you can't just throw it out because there's a part of it that you don't agree with. But in Utah, like other conservative states, it's become a hot button issue that they want to ban critical race theory from schools. Well, guess what? Your second grader isn't looking at esoteric uh, legal theories, you know? So there, there's some question if, uh, the utility in it. They they did pass a law saying you couldn't have a curriculum that said whites, that any race was better or worse than another race. And guess what? I agree with that. Um, but it was, it was a little bit of a culture war issue. Um, and I don't think very productive. Interesting. And I think it's still kind of ongoing too. I'm there. Right. Right. In Utah. It's and it's been embroiled the, the, man, the state board of education has really taken a beating during COVID. They have been the center of a lot of hot button issues. And you have a group of people who are really just trying to do a good job and get our kids educated. And, um, they've been at the center of a lot of controversy, including mass in schools and then critical race theory and some, some loud voices of, um, some, parent groups going around to different school boards and, and uh, make, causing, causing scenes. So, you know, it's a really hot button div- divisive issue, but I do like that the church has taken this step and been like, Hey, take, taken the conversation out of the culture wars a bit and said, Hey, at the end of the day, we are here to help people and we are going to devote some serious money to doing that. Yeah. It's good times. All right. Switching gears, Patricia, if I had to ask you, which Canadian province do you think has the highest percentage of Latter-day Saints? What would you tell me? Saskatchewan. False. Uh, British Columbia. Again, false, but you're doing a wonderful job bookending <laughs> the answer. I am just naming, I guess I could have looked at the article, but I'm just naming all the provinces. What is Canada's Texas? Just, just, just tell me. It's you're the fine province bad. of Alberta. 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 Yes. Um, so the newsroom dropped a small little article here today to get you to click through and just look at some of the church's uh, updated stats on the church website. But it's kind of fun. They have a little, I, I don't almost, it's not even a heat map. It's a proportional map, but basically demonstrating the percent Latter-day Saint by state and territory in the United States and Canada. I think most of this is st- what you would expect, I would say. Ob- like which one's the only one with more that's more than fifty percent LDS? Shocker! It's Utah. Dun, da, da, da. Um, but then American Samoa is the next highest with twenty nine point eight percent Latter Day Saint. Then Idaho is almost twenty seven percent LDS. Then Wyoming's about eleven point seven percent. Then it drops down to some of the sixes, the fives. Um, you know, it's a mix, like you might expect. Intermountain West, of course, is the most heavily Latter Day Saint. And Alberta. That's why I mentioned that Alberta, given its history, because if you look longitudinally just follows that nice Mormon corridor that Brigham Young set up, right? And that's why we had all the people who settled Cardston and everything back in the day. So Alberta easily has the most Latter-day Saints. And it's just, it's fun to see. Um, as a Virginian, I'm excited to see that most of the Eastern U.S. and Southeastern U.S. is just 0.5 to 1%. But Virginia sticks out. At least we are the same percentage as California and the Great Plains states and t- Texas, 1% to 2%. I'll yeah. accept it. That's mostly thanks to Washington, D.C., I'm pretty sure. Because 
in the DC metropolitan area. There's a decent amount of membership, but there are actually more stakes on the Virginian side than on the DC slash Maryland side, even though the Virginia side is geographically smaller than that other side. But Virginia is just, I don't know, they all live here. It's probably just low, you know lower income tax rates or something like that. But here we are. So anyways, fun to check out if you like maps and stuff. I'm surprised uh, Illinois is less than 0.5%. Hmm. Low, just just lower than I thought it would be. Just lower than you thought. Lower than I thought it would be proportionally, at least. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in Utah, I was looking this up for another story we're going to talk about. It's only sixty-two percent Mormon. It has gone down because of all these terrible tech jobs coming in that are ruining your housing prices and bringing in coffee into the state. How dare they? You used to be able to go. Okay, listen to me. About 30-odd years ago, if you went to Lehigh, you weren't even allowed to dance in public. John Lithgow made sure it was not possible, all right? Now, you have an Adobe campus there. I mean, how far have they fallen? Where is the Puritanism I came to expect from the 801 people? Come on. Yeah, I mean, and opening up a Starbucks across the street from uh, the school down south. Um Oh, I remember that was news. Did you ever at BYU? I always heard, but I don't know if this is corroborated anywhere that the the Starbucks that was up by the university, not the UTC, the University Mall in Orem. I heard that one had them sold the most hot chocolate per capita of any Starbucks. <laughs> and I think even the employees would say that, but I never saw any like figures released that explained it. But I mean, we should we should file a, a FOIA request. <laughs> Can you FOIA private businesses? That, that's Freedom of Information Act, people. By the way, in case you're, I don't think you can. Okay, but we should find out. We should I am, find out. I, I'm a Starbucks shareholder, so maybe I can de- I can demand answers for. You the- should. I I have no leverage over them, um, so I'm really relying on you, Jeff. Here, um, really but ma- maybe next we should talk about the medical marijuana bill in Utah, and that yeah. um, that's not necessarily new news, but Politico ran an interesting article about it. Um, so if you're, if you're not familiar, um, there was, there've been various efforts over the past several years to legalize medical marijuana in the state of Utah. They really weren't getting that way, getting very far through the state government body. So they, uh, they went through a ballot measure, which, um, Initially, the church was the the Church of Jesus Christ uh, of Latter Day Saints uh, was opposed to officially, um, but and they even sent this. This I uh, was kind of annoying to me. Um, they sent an email out through your LDS tools email. Yeah. Um, so mass blasted it through the their law firm, Kurt McConkie, um, telling you not to vote. Uh, in favor of medical marijuana. And um, I personally uh, was a little put off by that and it did inspire me to vote one way rather than the other. Um, but they saw public polling was was in favor of medical marijuana. So this article talks about how they kind of changed course and they pulled together several different voices and advocacy groups in the state to say, hey, this is going to happen we we should put effort into making the law the the way that um, closing some loopholes for recreational marijuana. Um, they made reference to how easy it is to get a medical mar- marijuana pass in some other states. I was wondering about the beard card at BYU and um, how people had to figure out creative ways so they didn't have to shave every day. 
Um, so yeah, uh, interesting article, Jeff. What did you think about it? Yeah, the, the history of it was fascinating to me because I remember we covered this a bit on the show how the church was publicly very against when it was when Utah was voting on that. That you were out there right, by that point when they voted for yeah. the medical marijuana bill and it passed resoundingly, even though the church said not to. And that's when the church kind of took notice. The thing to remember in Utah is unlike maybe some states like California that have full blown proposition as like the third way of of politics in the state. Like you can pass a ballot measure in California, it becomes law, even if the legislature does nothing with it. In Utah, it's more like advice to the legislature a lot of the time. Right. Right? It's just like, we all really want this. See, we voted on it. And then the legislature was going to take it and just say, we don't care. We're not going to do this because we don't care. They've done that with several different issues uh, yeah. over the past years. Yeah. So it is, it's interesting to me that the church eventually like stepped in and said, okay, the people, it's fine to hear the church be like, the people clearly really want this in our state. So instead of being just wholeheartedly against it, what do we do to make it a reality. And some of the people they interview, it's kind of interesting because they almost say that when they spoke to church reps, they all just assumed that like the bill was even about like recreational use or decriminalization of marijuana. And they're like, no, we're just straight up trying to stand up legal dispensaries for medicinal purposes. That's literally all the bill is about. And it's funny because you can see church lobbyists saying, oh, see, we thought you were trying to legalize the thing completely. Well, I will say the ballot measure, the wording on the ballot measure was a little vague. Um, and the enforcement was vague, um, basically saying you couldn't be, you didn't have to prove that you were allowed to have uh, medical marijuana. So it was basic, it could be interpreted to be de- decriminalizing. So I do think that that there were clarifications that should be made. And, you know, the takeaway from the article, from this political article, was about how the church is so influential. But I actually saw it as being kind of the opposite. Um, and that as the the church saw that they were on, quote unquote, the wrong side of the issue from the people, that's potentially a tricky spot for the yeah. church to be in because they they don't really weigh in that often in Utah politics. But when they do, they're used to getting what they ask for. And so weighing in so heavily and things going the either the other way could be you know, show how the church is having less of an influence on the state politics. So I think it was a little, um, I mean, maybe it was also with good intentions of making a good law. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. Yeah. Awesome, yeah, 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 of course. But a little self-serving in that it was maintaining its influence in the state. That's an interesting observation. It makes me think of, a, I think there was a Jana Reese article a few months ago we talked about on here, sort of getting to that very issue, like wondering how much, political sway the church would continue to have over its flock not just because of this but you know there's been a lot of drama with the election with you know i think she was referencing uh, elder oaks or president oaks talk in the last conference and all that that's an interesting issue to get into because usually the, the church gets its way and this time the church said don't vote for this and people voted for it anyway and i believe in arizona most recently last fall they said don't vote for this and people were like yeah well okay we're doing it anyway and like what happens when the church is pl- doesn't wield that kind of clout politically at least over its flock anymore if the flock just says this is a domestic this is a civil issue thanks for weighing in church but i'm not this isn't me sustaining the profit or anything this is me talking about what i think is best for the medical uh, community and my community writ large. Yeah. That's a, that is an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And the article mentioned, I forget the the woman's name who spoke up, but she was 
frustrated that she was specifically, I think she represents a patient advocacy group. She uh-huh. was kept out of the group that was convening. And she identified that she was, she would have been, she was in early talks and then was excluded. And she was the only, um, the law didn't have a non-Mormon presence. I haven't fact checked that. That's just what was reported in an article, which I think is notable. Um, 88% of the members of the Utah legislature are affiliated with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ. However, only like we talked about earlier, only 62% of the state is LDS. Just the way that districts are drawn, um, cough, gerrymandering. Um, That's like know, a different type of gerrymandering, though. They're gerrymandering based on church numbers, like that. <laughs> well, like- I I do think there 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 is a strong relationship between being a member of the church and being of one political party. So I don't think it's intentional to do it that way, but I do think there's an over-representation of um, LDS voices in the Utah legislature. And sometimes that weights things differently than, than it should, if it was going to reflect the, the multitude of opinions within the state. Yeah. Well, there we go. Good thoughts. So a uh, couple of other, just some quick mentions here. We talked about Witnesses a few weeks ago when Kurt was on. We reviewed the movie a little bit. It did pretty well at the box office. That's what the news is here. It was number 11 in the actual box office, but it ranked about number uh, on the national list. But it ranked fifth in terms of uh, its per theater average, which is a good way of viewing things. It's you know how much money are you making based on the number of screens you actually have, which sort of indicates demand, I think, a lot more because you could open on 4,000 screens and bomb Right, and even though your total number is very high, your average the theaters weren't very full. You made all your money spread out about the U.S., so they did pretty well for themselves. And I don't think it was a perfect film, but if we want to see more and better versions of films like this, then it's good that we can try to make them economically viable. Otherwise, no one's going to make them, and yeah. we just won't. And we won't have those things. And the, now, the guys on the Face and Hat podcast talked about this one. So if you're not familiar with the podcast, there are two guys from Berkeley. They're a faithful intellectual. Um, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. And they brought up a few things um, from witnesses, uh, aspects of the church's early history that maybe have surprised or alienated people as they've learned about them, including Mm -hmm. uh, Fanny Alger and uh, the translation process. They identified, hey, we need to start communicating some of these things to people so they're not surprised when they learn about them. Um, So, yeah, I thought that was an interesting conversation they had. Uh, and our last bit this week, this is someone's personal news, but it made the rounds in Latter-day Saint and regular circles. So David Archuleta, the famed singer who's now 30 years old, which frightens me because I, oh, I, wow. I think of him as like a 19-year-old kid yeah, all the time. Yeah, definitely do. Um, David Archuleta posted on Instagram sort of about his sexuality. And what is interesting is some have covered this like a coming out post, but it wasn't quite that. And mm-hmm. and whatever it was, that doesn't disqualify it or qualify it in any particular way. It's just what he said. And he basically said that there were times in his life when he thought he was homosexual, but then he realized he still had an attraction to women. And then later on, he questioned whether he was like attracted to anybody. Was he asexual? And I think in some, he just kind of said, I'm still figuring this out. But he did say like, he'd, he'd been thinking about these things for like 20 odd years about who he is, what his sexual identity is. And I think he kind of noted that it's significant for him to be more public about that, given his faith. And he talked about wrestling with his faith. So I don't know if we say David Archuleta is out per se, but I think he's more publicly discussing something that's been private to him and trying to be a, a notable ally for the LGBTQ population. Yeah. I, I, I really like this as well. I, I like 
to see when people feel like they can be authentic with their sexuality. And I think, you know, he doesn't need my approval um, to discuss his sexuality the, the way that is meaningful for him. But I thought it was a good example. He doesn't have to be a spokesman. You know, he, I, I don't right. think people should force him into being a spokesman for the gay and Mormon community, but I thought it was a really nice voice to add. And, um, yeah, I like how he wasn't categorizing himself as one way or the other, but he said, Hey, this is a process. Like I'm still figuring this out and I'm okay with it. And my, you know, I've confided to my family. So I really like that as one example of, um, of a different, different experience in the church. And I, I actually had a really great conversation about this in my Sunday school, um, yesterday, Jeff, it was, it, uh, the, the teacher read, read the caption. We had a good discussion about how to include more voices in the conversation. And, um, the, the, the teacher posed the question, if we have, we've come to love David Archuleta through the years and then learn this about him, if it had happened the other way, if we had learned this about him first, would we have come to love him, um, the way that we have? And her question was, Uh, pose to get us to think about, you know, do we let things like that um, keep us from loving people and embracing them as a Mormon cultural figure, not just as an individual, um, but as a prominent Mormon voice or artist? It's a good thought. I like that. I think that's a great note for us to end on too. That was, uh, that's thoughtful. Thank you, Patricia. I appreciate you sharing that. I wish we had that in my um, Sunday school, but we don't. We don't. It's very sad. Everybody, thank you very much for tuning in this week. We hope it's been fruitful for you. And uh, we love covering the news. Nice of you to tune in. Great of you to spend time with us. Seriously, we can't make the show without you guys. Shows like this don't exist without a listener base that cares about the program. So thank you for being a part of it. Please spread the word about what we're doing. I say that 11 and a half years into it, but please spread the word about what we're doing. My goal is to be on the air at least as long as MASH, which means (laughs) we're getting close. Maybe as long as Bonanza. I don't know. Either way, either way, maybe if I outlast John DeLynn, that should be what I do. Do I outlast Mormon stories? I'll just keep doing this until that stops. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Patricia, it's great to have you. I love having you here. It's so nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. And folks, all of you, once again, this is for you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Appreciate your time. This Week in Mormons is for you. It is because of you. And until we talk next week, I am Jeff. That was Patricia. This has been This Week in Mormons. Be well, be holy, and be happy.